attentive. In those days, those apostles who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to none except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number that believed turned to the Lord. News of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a large company was added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a large company of people. And in Antioch the disciples were the first, for the first time called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. And the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brethren who lived in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Peace be to you, the reader. Time, 
Jesus came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was with his journey, sat down beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, would you ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well, and drank from it himself, and his sons, and his cattle? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and he who you now have is not your husband. This you said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you say that Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such the Father seeks to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When He comes, He will show us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Just then his disciples came. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but none said, What do you wish, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the city and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Behold, the disciples besought him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him food? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? I tell you, lift up your eyes and see how the fields are already white for harvest. 
He who gathers, he who reaps, receives wages, and gathers fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of your words that we believe, for we have heard ourselves. And we know that this is indeed Christ the Savior of the world. Peace be to you who proclaims the gospel. Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Christ is risen. So I've been here in the, the Portland area for about two years now. It's about time that I do a homily about the clouds. This is what Oregon's famous for, right? The overcast skies. When I was in Las Vegas, my assignment before here, that seemed to be the only thing that people could say about the fact that I was moving to Oregon. They bought us an umbrella. They said, you know, it's going to rain a lot. Uh, someone once showed me an episode of that show, Portlandia, which I've never really seen the show, but this, in this one episode, there was uh, overcast days and days, and then the light shined through at this one spot. And all the people gathered together at that one spot and proceeded to have a barbecue. <laughs> and then the spot moved, and they picked up everything and moved to where the, the spot moved to. This continued. You had to admire their zeal for that sunlight. It's kind of similar to in colder climates. I've lived in places where there are brutal winters, and that first warmth of springtime, and suddenly everyone's out in their shorts and t-shirts when it's 55 degrees, because they're just so excited to have the sunshine and the warmth. We have even a physiological need for it. That's why we take our vitamin D, right? But there's much more to it. We just desire to be in the warmth and in the sunlight. It gives us joy. Today, we commemorate someone who was in the light. Her name was Fotini, which means the illumined one. She was given the light by Christ. As we hear in this gospel narrative, there's this conversation between her and Christ. One of the longest conversations in all of the gospels. And in this conversation, it starts from him asking for water and leads to her proclaiming him as the Messiah as the chosen one, the one, as the other villagers said, who would be the savior of the world. And so there's Fotini, she was illumined by Christ. She was dwelling in his warmth and in his light. And in that zeal, 
She went to her village. She told all the people about this, brought them out. And then as her sto the story of her life continues, she traveled abroad proclaiming Christ. She lived in Carthage in North Africa. And then she finally went to Rome where her children were there in Rome. And her and her children became martyrs for Christ. Throughout her life, it was a witness to that light, to the warmth of the grace of God, to the, of, love, of the love of God. In the pre-sanctified liturgy that we have during Great Lent, there's a part between the readings where the priest comes out with a candle and says, The light of Christ illumines all. This is the nature of God. This is who God is. He is one who sheds his light, his love, his joy, his grace upon everyone and everything, much like the sun. Now what if I said, it's always sunny in, on Beaverton. Every day is sunshine for Beaverton. Would you agree with that? No. And yet, the sun always shines on Beaverton. The sun shines on every place on the earth, every single day. The sun is still shining here in Beaverton. The problem is not the sun. They're the clouds. So in fact, the sun does shine every day. Our problem is that we have these clouds. So now we extend that into our spiritual lives. God's love and His grace is shining upon all of us at all times. It's not that God is turning away or that God gives His love only to certain people at certain times and certain situations. But rather, His love, His grace, His joy, His beauty is shining upon all of creation at all times. But we've got these clouds. And our obstructions, unlike the clouds where it's upon everyone everywhere, everyone in Beaverton experiences the same experience, for us, our spiritual obstructions are each unique. Each of us have different spiritual obstructions. Mine are different than yours. And they come and go at different times. We have seasons in our life where it feels like all there is is obstruction. And that those seasons can at times be very overwhelming, kind of like the long winters here in Oregon, where we feel like, where is God's love? Where is God's grace? So I'd like to talk about three different ways in which we have obstructions between us and God's grace, so that we can better understand what those are and therefore how to get past them. The first is our priorities. What are our priorities? Our Lord said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You could change that to, where your priorities are, there your heart will be also. What are our priorities? Because we can say our priorities, but in fact our actions show our priorities. Our thoughts. What are we thinking about day in and day out? What are we doing with our time day in and day out? This is what our priority is. And if it is not first and foremost God, you'll see it in your actions. You'll see it in your life. I see it in my life. And I can say, 
in light of my actions and my priorities, I don't really love God. There's a memorable passage from the book, The Pilgrim Continues His Way, which is the follow-up to The Way of the Pilgrim, that classic spiritual book. And it's a wise elder offering what a good confession looks like. And here's what he says, and I can relate to this closely. I do not love God, for if I love God, I should be continually thinking about Him with heartfelt joy. Every thought of God would give me gladness and delight. Isn't this exactly how we are with our loved ones? On the contrary, I much more often and much more eagerly think about earthly things, and thinking about God is labor and dryness. If I loved God, then talking with Him in prayer would be my nourishment and delight and would draw me to unbroken communion with Him. But on the contrary, I not only find no delight in prayer, but even find it an effort. I struggle with reluctance, I am enfeebled by sloth, I'm ready to occupy myself eagerly with any unimportant trifle, if only it shortens prayer and keeps me from it. Who of us cannot relate to that? Who of us are not incriminated by those words? This is where our priorities lie. This is where our love is. So we can say we love God, but I submit to you, I do not love God. I can try, and I can begin. That is not a point of despair, but rather a point of reality. If I recognize I don't really love God, but of course I want to love God, then there's something. There's something that can be done. And it comes back to our priorities. Where are our priorities? Because our priorities are one of the, the biggest uh, blockages between us and God's grace. We put our concerns in other things. The second is one that we all know in the spiritual life. It's what we call the passions. And these are those things that we really desire instead of God. We really desire to have our things because we have the passion of avarice or greed. We really desire to have other people's praise because we really love ourselves. We really desire to have everything go well in our life because we don't really trust that God will provide for us. We don't really have faith in God's providence. There are many ways in which the passions cause a continual blockage in our ability to commune with God. And so for each of us, those passions are different. It's a different potion, a different stew. And for those passions, we need to know what they are, and then knowing what they are to begin the slow work of undoing their hold upon us. The third and the hardness for us, the hardest one for us to see the third um, obstruction to God's grace is hardness of heart. Now we see this passage in the Bible many times about their hearts being hardened. And oftentimes, because it's in the Bible, it's about other people, we think of that as a problem of other people. Other people have hardness of heart. 
So they don't really understand God. They don't really know God. They can't see His grace. They can't even see the miracles in front of them because they have this hardness of heart. In fact, we all have hardness of heart. Hardness of heart is the limit of our love towards those around us. And we all have those limits. But these are obstructions to our love of God. If we have animosity towards a person that we know, then we are obstructing God's grace in our lives. If we have anger, if we have resentment, even if we just have a little bit of envying of them, because we really want the life that they have. Whatever it is that is a way in which we have closed off our heart to that other person, we are always closing off our heart in some fashion towards God. Always. We can't see it any other way. St. Dorotheos of Gaza says, When we continually to force ourselves to bless and pray for others, we will find that our Lord Jesus Christ will change, renew, and refresh our hearts. It may take some time and persistence, but gradually, almost imperceptibly, we will be changed. The poison of resentment by the grace of Christ will leave our system. Hardness of heart is a poison. It's a poison that we allow to stay inside of us. And we just sort of say, well, that's that thing. That thing is different. I can love the people around me. I can be kind to people. I can be generous. But that person, I just don't want to go there. And when we do that, we cut off a part of our heart and say, this is not, this is off limits to God. Because I've reserved it for my resentment for this other person. We need to free ourselves of that. So you see there are many clouds that cover our ability to feel God's grace. And there are times when it feels that we are just under cloud cover and cloud cover and rain and dreariness. And we're asking God, God, help me. God, be with me. When we have those moments of despair, there's great spiritual power in there. There's great zeal. I know it's kind of a silly analogy, but you think of those people in the Portlandia episode, how quickly they're running to get into the sunlight. This is what we should be. We have our priorities misaligned. We have the passions that overwhelm us and enslave us. And we have our own hardness of heart where we refuse to give and allow God's grace. The other thing that we're celebrating today still is mid-Pentecost. It's a feast day that we celebrated on Wednesday. And on that feast day, we have the Apolitikian we sing today, which is, At the midpoint of the feast, O Savior, water my thirsty soul with streams of true devo devotion. In the Gospel, we hear about this water, this living water. And on this feast day, we hear about the thirst for the living water. When we have despair, that is a time when we can say, I thirst, I desire you, God. All of the ways in which I've misaligned my life, I'm willing to set those aside because I am so low that I need you, God. This is the place of great power. This is the place of zeal where we can truly begin to follow God. Because truly the only place that we can receive the living water is in our prayer life, and in the sacraments. 
This is where we receive that living water. So come to church, receive the sacraments, and pray. That right there is the equation that's the opposite of the things I've been describing. I'll leave you with one final quote from Elder Sergei Avanves. He says, Prayer should not depend on our mood or goodwill. If we're in a bad state, it's because we're filled with sin. Thus we need to repent. Every day examine your conscience and repent. Force yourself to pray regularly every day. Even if you don't want to do that, then repent of that. You must understand how necessary this is. Know that the devil lurks and waits to destroy your soul and that you are always in danger. Prayer alone will give your soul the strength to resist. In order to acquire spiritual muscles, you have to go to the spiritual gym. May God give us that strength. Amen.